We are getting near the Christmas season. And Christmas is wonderful because it's a time of giving gifts. One of the biggest struggles I have each Christmas season is trying to figure out what to buy for people. Because I never know, you know, what's a good gift. So I've decided to help you all out this morning. I've got some gift ideas for you. And this is what I mean. These are gifts you can give to people or gifts you can request from people. These are gifts that I think would make a wonderful Christmas present. And so I urge you, as you're listening to me today, and as you may take your sheets home and read them, read them with an idea toward this. What book might I like to receive or might be a nice gift for someone else? Because that's my encouragement to you as we go through C.S. Lewis. I can't even begin to teach C.S. Lewis in 45 minutes. It's just not possible. The man authored over 50 books. There are dozens and dozens of books written about him. There are C.S. Lewis encyclopedias. The man has had Shadowlands, the movie made about him and his life. The Chronicles of Narnia movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that came out recently is a C.S. Lewis book put into movies. And that's just one out of over 50 books. So I can't help, hope to, to, to give even a, a beginning view of C.S. Lewis, but if I can do anything at all, I'd like to encourage you to go read some C.S. Lewis. I was talking to Richard before class, and he brought me a collection of C.S. Lewis volumes that are in one volume. And I said, how'd you like him? He said, I love the first half. He said, the last half, eh, it wasn't for me. And that's the nice thing about it. C.S. Lewis has written in so many different areas. He's written fiction for children, fiction for adults. He's written um, literary criticism. I mean, ultimately, the guy was a phenomenal Oxford scholar. He's written um, great works of theology, great works of philosophy. So there's a whole gamut from A to Z, and you'll find something you like. So with that in mind, gift idea number one. <clears throat> the book Surprised by Joy. Surprised by Joy is an autobiographical account that Lewis gave of his early life and his conversion. And it's a wonderful book. It was first published, I think, in around 55, but it may have been earlier. Um, uh, it may have been much earlier. The copy I have is 55, so it must have been earlier. Surprised by Joy, though, is a wonderful reckoning of his early life. And let me tell you a little bit about his early life. Clive Staples Lewis was born on November 29, 1898, in Belfast, Ireland. His father was a lawyer, can't be all bad, Albert Lewis. His mother, Flora Augusta Lewis, I believe her first full name was Florence. She was a brainiac. Um, she got first in, in, in college in logic and mathematics. She was a, a, a brilliant, brilliant woman. She taught C.S. Lewis as an early child. She taught him French. She taught him Latin. Um, um, I, I read one fellow commenting on, on the Lewis household, and they said that both of the parents were absolutely brilliant but had no knack at all for interior design. Their house was absolutely um, uh, wretched in terms of aesthetic qualities, but what there were were books all over the place. 
And C.S. Lewis, as a kid, grew up, and he, didn't, he wasn't very athletic, and he didn't do many athletic things. He had a genetic uh, problem. Uh, he had no, no thumb joints, so he couldn't bend his thumb. And that makes it kind of hard to be athletic. But what he could do is turn pages of a book. And he read, and he read, and he read, and he read. Lewis was baptized into the Church of Ireland, which was the Church of England in Ireland, by his grandfather. His mother's father was the rector there, Reverend Thomas Hamilton. He was baptized two months after his birth, January 29th. You can go find the entry in the registry at the baptistry where it shows it. It was written, let's see, here it is. On 1899, um, uh, you can see this is uh, uh, the entry for January 29th of 1899 when he was baptized. You can see, let's see, November 29th right there, 1898. That was his birth date. Let's get this one up. Clive Staples, C.S. Lewis. His friends called him Jack. Jack was his nickname all of his life, which is kind of cool because uh, of something I'll tell you later. But his parents, let's see if we can bring that one up. Albert James and uh, Florence Augusta. Those were his parents. And then if we scoot on down the row here, you can see his daddy was a solicitor. And the baptizer was Thomas uh, uh, Hamilton, his, his grandfather. And so you can still see the entries there. He had one older brother, and that was his only sibling. His older brother was Warren. There's his dad right there. This is a family picture. We've got C.S. Lewis wearing the dress there on his dad's knee. (coughs) We've got um, his older brother, Warren. He was very close to his older brother, Warren, all, all of their days. And then standing behind is his mother, Flora. He had a dog that he loved. His dog's name was Jaxie. And in 1902, one of the very first automobile accidents in all of Ireland happened in Belfast when one of those early automobiles ran over his dog, Jaxie, and killed it. So little four-year-old C.S. Lewis, that cute little picture. Here, that was picture day. That's another picture wearing the same clothes. Little four-year-old C.S. Lewis declared from then on out his name would be Jaxie, and he wasn't going to answer to any other name in honor of his dog. And eventually it became Jax. And then finally Jack. But Jack is what he was known for the rest of his life. And that's what his friends would call him. Um, About this time, his dad built another home. And it was uh, a home that was really a major part of his development. This was a home that had a wonderful attic that made all sorts of noises. And in this home, Ireland weather is not, uh, um, it's not the weather we're used to here. It's, it's weather that can be very dank and very dark. It can be very uh, um, uh, inclement, bad weather. And so lots of times, C.S. Lewis and his brother would not be able to go out and play. And so they'd be stuck in the house playing together. And here's what C.S. Lewis said about it. He said, we always had pencils, paper, chalk, and paint boxes. And this recurring imprisonment gave us occasion and stimulus to develop the habit of creative imagination. We learned to draw. Together, yeah, he's British. Together we devised the imaginary country of Boxen, which proliferated hugely and became our solace and joy for many years to come. He and his brother, you know, they didn't have TV. They didn't have radio. They can't go outside and play. 
So what did they do? They sat around and they devised up these whole countries and they drew pictures of talking animals and all sorts of things as a young child that would become part of the warp and woof of his life, part of the fabric, part of the tapestry that's woven all the way till he died. And it was a really neat place. He had a wonderful childhood until uh, uh, about the age of 10. About the age of 10, his mother, who was his joy and strength and teacher and all, uh, developed cancer and she died. And his dad didn't know how to handle it very well. So within a couple of days, his dad sent him off to boarding school. And so C.S. Lewis and his older brother were off at boarding schools. And he actually went to a number of different boarding schools during this time period. At the age of 13, a very smart lad, in boarding school, he becomes an atheist. He becomes what he called an intellectual atheist. He decided that the only bright thing that there could ever be to life is to understand that there is no God and there is no religion that is valid or truthful. Now, about this same time, there was a great friend, a lifetime friend that C.S. Lewis made who lived across the street from him. And this lifetime friend, Arthur Greaves, C.S. Lewis wrote letters back and forth, literally, till the day he died. Um, uh, it, it was a, a long, long time friendship. Arthur Greaves, uh, uh, at this time, writes C.S. Lewis a letter while C.S. Lewis is in boarding school. And Lewis writes him back as an intellectual atheist. This is a picture of Arthur Greaves. And uh, C.S. Lewis writes, my dear Arthur, I believe in no religion. There's absolutely no proof for any of them. All religions are merely man's own invention. And this Lewis believed. He writes this, he's 18 at the time he writes it. <clears throat> or he's got an 18th birthday coming the next month. He's 17. Lewis at this same point in time, you know, England is involved in World War I. And Lewis, because he's Irish instead of English, is not subject to the draft. But over his father's objections, Lewis still goes down and volunteers. And on his uh, uh, 19th birthday, Lewis is shipped off and he starts fighting in the trenches of World War I. This picture that I've got in the PowerPoint is not C.S. Lewis. It is, however, a trench picture from World War I to give us the flavor of what it would have been like. His best friend in the army uh, got killed while they were in service there together. And Lewis took care of his best friend's mother into the 50s uh, until the day she died. Even at a time where she no longer recognized him because of the, the aging disease she had. He still took care of her, visited her, lived with her or had her live with him for decades. But uh, uh, ultimately when she was in a nursing home unable to understand anything. C.S. Lewis, out of a commitment he had made to his buddy over 30 years earlier, saw her every day and was faithful till she died, treated her like his own mother. C.S. Lewis himself gets uh, wounded during World War I, and he gets sent back to England as he finishes his time there. He goes to Oxford University College at Oxford, which <clears throat> is where our son is right now in graduate school at the same college there in Oxford. And I, I talked to Will as I was getting ready for this lesson. He said he was so excited. I talked to him this morning driving to church. He said, I wish I could be there. Tell everybody how real this is for those of us who are over here. Because Will is at the very same campus in the very same buildings where C.S. Lewis got to study. And it's really a neat experience. Lewis graduates from Oxford getting some incredible marks. They call them firsts 
in a number of his classes. Um, Lewis is terrible at math, but he's wonderful with all things linguistic. And so he does very well in philosophy and he does very well in matters that are, are language related. After he graduates, he takes a job teaching medieval and Renaissance literature at um, Magdalen College. The way Oxford's set up, Oxford's the entire university system, but there are specific colleges within Oxford. There's University College, there's Magdalen, there's Pembroke, there are these various different colleges within the university system. And so uh, C.S. Lewis goes over and teaches for uh, uh, over 25 years there. While Lewis is teaching there, he runs into a number of people. Now understand, Lewis at the time is still an atheist. He's a profound atheist. He thinks atheism is the only intellectually honest answer to life's biggest problems. In 1929, Lewis, who wrote his dad a lot of letters, but was never especially close to his dad. Lewis's father dies in 1929. We do have an early photo of Lewis here on the right and his father here on the left. Uh, uh, as they posed for this photo, but but Lewis's father dies the same year that that C.S. Lewis becomes a theist. Now, why do we say theist? Because <clears throat> he wasn't an atheist. In Greek, the letter A means not or un. It's kind of like we use un or or m. If something's mobile, it's mobile. If it's not mobile, it's immobile. Okay, A means the same thing in the Greek language. And so if you're a theist, you believe there's God. God is theos in the Greek. If you're an atheos, you believe there is no God. So an atheist is someone who believes there's no God. Uh, The same principle, agnostic in Greek, gnostic or gno. We've changed it into kno, K-N-O-W, but our K is silent. means to know, gnosis. So you put A in front of it. If you're an agnostic, you're someone who doesn't know if there's a God or not. Okay? So an atheist is what C.S. Lewis was. He did not believe there was a God. But in 1929, he becomes a theist. Now, he doesn't believe Jesus is Christ. He's not a Christian. He just merely acknowledges, and he says he did it very begrudgingly. He, did, he said, I was dragged kicking and screaming into agreeing that there must be a God. The reason why is because he was running around with a crowd of people, some of whom <clears throat> were Christians. And they were of the same intellectual caliber that C.S. Lewis was. And so all of his life, he had thought that the intellectual answer to life's problems was unbelief. But he meets these people who are clearly of his intellectual caliber, maybe even beyond it, who are fervent Christians. And at first, it's a lawyer by and large, a guy named Barfield, that convinces Lewis there's got to be some kind of a deity. There's got to be some kind of a god. So Lewis begrudgingly accepts it in 1929 and then starts hanging around these guys more and more. One of these fellas that he's hanging around is this guy right here, J.R.R. Tolkien. Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, Silmarillion, that fella. J.R.R. Tolkien is a devout Catholic. Um, In fact, C.S. Lewis says, uh, early in my life, like coming out of the womb, I was taught never trust a papist. 
a papist. Papist is a derogatory term, sort of, for a Catholic. And that's because his grandfather was so fervently anti-Catholic. Never trust a papist. He said, and then when I came to Oxford, I was told, never trust a philologist. That's uh, someone who's, who's a lover of words, someone who uh, deals with the English language and where it comes from and its twists and its turns. He says, Tolkien was both. <laughs> but the friendship is great. There was another fellow named Hugo Dyson, and I couldn't find a picture of him, but I found his tombstone. <clears throat> Here lies Hugo Dyson. Hugo Dyson and Tolkien spent an evening with uh, C.S. Lewis in 1931 trying to discuss whether or not that Jesus is Christ. And they discussed and they discussed and they discussed. And Lewis went away unconvinced. But either the next day or two, depending on the account you read, Lewis had an opportunity to go to the Whipsnake Zoo in London with his brother. That's not an actual picture of them. That's one I stole from Lewis, Miori. Uh, no, that's not Lewis either, but it's a motorcycle <laughs> like Lewis or Mike would have. And a sidecar. C.S. Lewis never drove a car his whole life. Never drove. Walked almost everywhere he went. But when he went to the zoo with his brother, C.S. Lewis rode in the sidecar while his brother drove his little motorcycle <laughs> going down the road. C.S. Lewis says, when we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. <laughs> All I can figure out is his brother drove like I do. <laughs> C.S. Lewis became a Christian. And uh, uh, a fellow who was an American that went over and took care of C.S. Lewis in his last years and got to know him quite well said uh, he was the most thoroughly converted Christian I ever met because when he became a Christian he didn't become a Christian because he inherited it he didn't become a Christian because he he felt he needed some meaning to to get up each morning he didn't become a Christian because he figured he ought to hedge his bets and it's better safe than sorry he became a Christian because he determined it's the most intellectually honest answer to all of life's problems he became a Christian because it was right and truthful. And if that's the reason you believe, then you believe with all of your heart and your whole life changes. And C.S. Lewis's whole life changed. His writing changed and, and, and all things about it. It's a wonderful gift idea. So I said it before you, by surprise, by joy. It's a great, great introduction to his life and his conversion, and it's, it's witty, and it's well-written. This is a fellow who writes in the English language so articulately that I feel a fool to speak about him in the same language because my, I, 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 I speak English on a Lubbock, Texas level. This guy is like the queen probably calls him to find out exactly how it should be done because it's the queen's English, right? Well... He has it down, and it's just so fun to read. Hard at times, but very fun. Gift idea number two, Mere Christianity. These are the books that Dale was gracious enough to put in the back for folks, as he was able to grab a few copies. Mere Christianity came out of some radio broadcasts 
that C.S. Lewis was asked to do during World War II. England has a, a national broadcasting system called the British Broadcasting System, uh, a company, the BBC. And the BBC asked Lewis to come on at a time when London is being bombed, at a time when soldiers are being sent to fight, when, when pilots are taking off and their planes are being shot down over Germany and the whole country's on edge. We look back at World War II and we know who won. At the time, they did not, the, the odds were not that England would win. In fact, if America had not stepped into the picture, it's very doubtful they would have. Um, um, so it's a very tense time. And there are a lot of people who are listening to the radio that you, when your life's on the line, you start thinking more eternally. Um, uh, be it in a hospital bed or be it on a battleground. And so C.S. Lewis was asked to talk about his Christian faith. There are not a lot of, there's not a lot of that broadcast left. There is a little segment I was able to find off a BBC website that I'd like to play for you. It's C.S. Lewis. He's just taking a little diversion and he's talking about prayer. And he's saying one of the problems that people have with prayer that come to C.S. Lewis is they say, how could God listen to the prayer of millions of people all at the same time? Just doesn't make sense. God surely can't do that. How could God pay attention to my prayer at the same time you're praying? I compound the problem. What about the football games where both sides praying to win? <laughs> but Lewis doesn't delve into that. Lewis does delve into the issue. And he does it in a kind and gentle way that conveys his just one. He says this is just one possible answer. But he's trying to get people to understand that God doesn't live in time the way that we do and what some of the ramifications for that might be. So I think we have time. I'm going to play you about a two-minute clip from C.S. Lewis on the radio. It gives you a chance to hear his voice, too. We'll say, almost certainly, God is not in time. His life doesn't consist of moments following one another. If a million people are praying to him at 10.30 tonight, he hasn't got to listen to them all in that one little snippet which we call 10.30. 10.30 and every other moment from the beginning to the end of the world is always the present for him. If you like to put it that way, he has infinity in which to listen to the split second of prayer put up by a pilot as his plane crashes in flames. That's difficult, I know. Can I try to give something not the same, but a bit like it? Suppose I'm writing a novel. I write, Mary laid down her book, next moment came a knock at the door. For Mary, who's got to live in the imaginary time of the story, there's no interval between putting down the book and hearing the knock. But I, her creator, between writing the first part of that sentence and the second, may have gone out for an hour's walk and spent the whole hour thinking about Mary. I know that's not a perfect example, 
but it may just give a glimpse of what I mean. The point I want to drive home is that God has infinite attention, infinite leisure to spare for each one of us. He doesn't have to take us in the lump. You're as much alone with him as if you were the only thing he'd ever created. When Christ died, he died for you individually, just as much as if you'd been the only man in the world. I would love to have heard these broadcasts. He took a gathering of them together, and he published them in this book, Mere Christianity. And so the book, Mere Christianity, is actually... <clears throat> His radio talks. He's, um, the first edition, he, he even does it with don't and won't. But, uh, in later editions, he decided that he just couldn't bear that. So he changed it to do not and would not. But he tries otherwise to keep it as conversant as he possibly could. And so, um, uh, uh, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. He entitles it Mere Christianity because he says, I'm not out to make someone a Presbyterian or a Baptist or a Methodist or an Anglican or a Catholic. He says, I'm out just to teach what is, is the mere or basic Christian principles. And that's not to say that there aren't other valid things. He says, let me give you this illustration. There's a hallway from which many doors lead off. He says, I'm here to get people into the hallway to understand the mere or basic aspects of Christian faith that, that churches and Christians have understood for thousands of years. He says, now, there are doors that go into the different churches where different issues are doctrinally uh, challenged and explored and explained. And he says, and those are wonderful places. No one should ever live in the hallway. He says, you need to go on into the rooms where there are places to sit and to eat and to sleep. But first, let's get everybody into the hallway. And then urge them to find the door that seems right. And that's what he tries to do in this book. The book is actually divided up into four books. And uh, if you don't have a handout, by the way, as you consider buying gifts for people, um, you can go to the biblical-literacy.com website and get it. Uh, we may have one or two extra here. But um, uh, I'm sorry about that. But all of the lessons, the audio, the the um, PowerPoint and the written lessons are posted on the website. Now, the neat thing about this, book one, is C.S. Lewis starts out and he talks about how right and wrong give us a clue to what the meaning is of the universe. Here's his example. Have you ever heard two people quarreling? Maybe you've been one of them. Quarreling means one person trying to show the other fella is in the wrong. When we quarrel... Now, I got Ron Hickman here. He's constable for our area. He's probably presided over 80 gazillion quarrels because a lot of what his folks get called out to deal with start out at least as quarrels. Quarreling. Lewis probably experiences quarreling. Quarreling. Fussing is the Lubbock word for quarreling. I have trouble with quarreling. It doesn't even sound like a word after you say it three times. But fussing, I get fussing. And the reason people fuss is because... So we're just shifting gears. This is C.S. Lewis in Lubbock. <coughs> the reason people fuss 
The reason people fuss is because one of them thinks the other one's wrong or one of them's right. And so they fuss trying to prove it. C.S. Lewis says, I'm sure you've all seen this. He says, what does it mean? It means that somewhere inside everybody thinks there's something that's right. There's something that's right. There's something that's right. There's something that's wrong. We internally know it. Don't let anybody ever deny with you that there is a real right and a wrong. If there's no real right and wrong, nobody has any room to fuss. But the whole reason we fuss is because we think we're right on something. Well, you didn't treat me right. Or you didn't do this right. Or this is your fault. Or you're wrong about this. And C.S. Lewis says the whole idea that we can use these words when we fuss or use these concepts, gives us a clue that there's something going on in the universe outside of ourselves. That I have a basis for saying to Clark, hey, I think you're wrong. Or he has a basis of saying to me, Mark, I think you're wrong. C.S. Lewis says, human beings all over the world have this curious idea that they ought to behave a certain way. Everybody has this internal clock or in, that, that, that tells them how they ought to be. Uh, internal mod- modulator. Internal measuring stick. Everybody on earth has this internal sense that they ought To behave some way or another. It doesn't matter where they're brought up, in what culture, in what society, in what civilization, in what time period. Everyone has this internal sense of how they ought to behave. And he says, I'll go you a step further. He says, not only that, but everyone around the planet does not behave the way they think they should. Period. And so he works through this logically. He works through the objections that people have. But logically he charts through and he explains as he does so that this must mean there's something outside of us that's directing the universe. There's got to be. This is how he became a theist. He says that doesn't mean it's the Christian God. But there's got to be something outside that's directing us. Because internally, we just know we should be doing things that we're not doing. Book one. Book two in mere Christianity. He says, let's look at the core beliefs of Christianity. And this is really, some of this is what Tolkien and Dyson really pounded on C.S. Lewis about. One of C.S. Lewis's biggest problems is how could Christianity be right when there are so many other religions and faiths in the world. There's Hinduism, there's Confucianism, there, there's Greek mythology, Norse mythology, uh, uh, there's you know uh, Egyptian mythology, there's so many Taoism, there, there's so many different religions around the world. How could we ever be so arrogant as to think Christianity's true and all the others are false? Here's what Tolkien said to him the night before he became a Christian. He said, actually, you got to be the big dog if you're the atheist. Because the atheist has to teach that all of them are wrong. 
An atheist has to believe that every single religion that teaches anything about God is wrong. Every single religion, whether it's a tribal religion in Africa, South America, North America, the Philippines, anywhere in the globe, every single religion that teaches anything about God, an atheist must believe is false. But for Christians, Christians actually believe that you might find some grains of truth in many religions. You'll find absolute truth in Christianity. But the Christian doctrine, as C.S. Lewis embraced it, was as follows. God prepares people of all nations to receive Christ. And the way he does it is by giving them in their own lives some grain of truth. How many missionaries can talk about the fact that they go and other cultures have this concept of a sacrifice to appease God? The Incas in Central America had the concept of sacrificing to appease gods. Now, we don't think that the Inca faith or the Mayan faith was the right faith. And yet, the way Lewis says, that doesn't mean that there weren't grains of truth in there that God had allowed to go on so that when Christianity did come and, and God was revealed and how God actually worked in history, those people already had some way to relate and understand it. I'll bet if we could have Brother Ayala up here to talk to us about some of the, the concepts of, of some of the, the more outlying religions within the Philippines that, that he's encountered, he'd be able to tell us there are aspects of even the most unchristian religions that have enough similarities to where there is a point of contact for a missionary to talk. So C.S. Lewis all of a sudden says, don't think Christians are arrogant because they think they're right and everyone else is wrong. The arrogant one is the atheist who thinks everybody's wrong. The Christian believes there are nuggets of truth all around the place, though the real absolute truth is in Jesus Christ. See the difference? In fact, C.S. Lewis says atheism is a boy's philosophy. He says it's too simple. He says, you know, the little boy that says, I got all the answers. He says, nah, those little boys need to grow up. I just love the fact that here's this guy who's absolutely dead brilliant. I mean, you can't read C.S. Lewis without brilliance dripping off every page. Okay, this guy's dead brilliant. And this guy who's dead brilliant says, you know, it's kind of like ah, atheism. That's for sissies. It's intellectual sissies. Yeah, those guys, bless their hearts, they just need to grow up. Because atheism sometimes parades itself as being the true intellectual answer. Oh, I've outgrown those superstitious religions. I'm now an atheist. And C.S. Lewis looks at him and says, oh, silly boy, grow up. Because atheism doesn't have the answers. Lewis says, we live in a good world that's gone wrong. But our world still retains the memory of what it ought to have been. And that's why we have this inside us, this naggingness. We'll get into this more as we see how Francis Schaeffer unfolded it next week, God willing. 
Now, as for Jesus, one of the things that Lewis is famous for is what's called the trilemma. The trilemma, not the dilemma. Dilemma is a choice between two things. Trilemma is three. When it comes to Jesus, he says, here's the thing about Jesus. He's one of three things. It's the trilemma. You got three choices. Either Jesus is a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg. I worked hard on that. Those are poached eggs on that lunatic. (laughs) Either Jesus is a lunatic on a level with a man who thinks he's a poached egg... Or, Jesus is the devil of hell, or he's the son of God. Those are the three choices. There's not a fourth choice. I have a friend I grew up with, a dear friend of mine. And she told me about a year or two ago on the phone one time that she's grown past believing in Jesus as Messiah. Jesus was just a good man. And I needed to grow up and understand that too. And the words of C.S. Lewis echoed in my ears. You can shut him up for a fool. Speaking of Jesus. You can shut Jesus up for a fool. You can spit at Jesus. You can kill Jesus as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option up to us. Because Jesus says he's Messiah. Jesus says he's the son of God. Jesus says he is. He can't be a great teacher. He's either a liar or he's either a madman or he is who he says he is. And that was Lewis. Book three, morality and ethics. I don't have time. Book four, theology of the Trinity. I don't have time. Go read it. Next gift idea. (laughs) Chronicles of Narnia. I want to tell you about the Chronicles of Narnia. My favorite book in there is the one, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It starts out with the line, there was a boy named Clarence Eustace Scrub, and he almost deserved it. (laughs) This little boy was like a real terror. Um, It's got a chapter in there where it talks about the duffel puds. The duffel puds are these one-footed creatures that bounce around everywhere because they can't walk because they only have one foot and one leg. And the duffel puds serve a magician. The magician is a type of, of God or Christ. He's a God figure in the book, um, a parallel to God. And the duffel puds are parallel to us. But the duffel puds walk around, they think, hop around, they think they're the most brilliant thing in the world, and they think that the magician is out to do nothing but to make their life miserable. You know, he's making them garden. Well, the magician says the reason I make them garden is so they'll have food to eat. But they don't see it that way. They think he's just a wicked taskmaster. And then he's also tricky because the magician tells them to get the water for the garden in their buckets from this stream that comes right down by the garden. Surely he's trying to trick them. They know better than him. So they hop half a mile away to a spring to get their water and hop all the way back with their buckets just spilling out half the water all the way back because they're not going to be tricked by that nasty magician into just getting the water right next to the garden and pouring it in. And I just kept thinking, how many times has God told me to do this? And I think, oh, yeah, right. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. Like, I know better. Duffel puds. Gift idea number four, (laughs) Space Trilogy. I love the Space Trilogy. Three books, Out of the Silent Planet, Paralendra, That Hideous Strength. Read them. Read them. They're phenomenal. 
I don't have time to tell you how much I love them. But they're great. The Great Divorce, another good gift idea. This is the afterlife. But it's kind of done with a little uh, Pilgrim's Progress dream stuff. At the end, he wakes up. But it's uh, uh, he dies and he sees these guys on trains and, and buses going to heaven or to hell or purgatory or whatever. And it's just all the fussing and fighting they do. And, and the wild part is, is the people who go to hell, ultimately, that's where they want to go. They, they, they look at heaven. Who wants to go there? All those people being nice to each other. It's just absolutely insightful to the human condition and you'll find things that you love. It's an easy read. It's a fun read. The Problem of Pain. This is a book where C.S. Lewis addressed what, why we have evil in the world. And it's a very good read as well. A Grief Observed. C.S. Lewis got married late in life. He never figured he would marry. But a, a woman came into his life late in life. He married her knowing she would not live long. Um, uh, Joy was her name. He was surprised by Joy, uh, though that's not what that book was about. But Joy came into his life. They were married for four or five years before cancer took her. And when cancer took her, uh, C.S. Lewis was just devastated. And he journaled. That was his solace. And so he grabbed every sheet of paper he could and he just journaled. He published his journaling through that grief, a grief observed. But he didn't put it under his own name. He published it under another name because he didn't want it too personalized. But what happened is, when it came out, all of C.S. Lewis's friends started buying copies of it and giving it to C.S. Lewis saying, here, read this, this will help you. (laughs) So he decided, well, hey, might as well just stick my name on it so they quit buying it for me. I'm sure it was good for sales, but... um, it's wonderful. The screw tape letters. I love the screw tape letters. Screw tape letters are another fictional work where a, 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 a demon, a senior demon, is writing to his nephew, Wormwood. Screw tapes the senior demon. And he writes letters to Wormwood, explaining to Wormwood how to better take care of his patient, which is a human that Wormwood's trying to keep from God and faith. And it's fascinating. He says things like, The very new desirable friends are just the sort of people we want him to know. They're rich, they're smart, they're superficially intellectual, and brightly skeptical about everything in the world. Just let him run around with those people. He'll want to think, he thinks, oh, they're rich, and oh, they seem so smart. And, And it will keep him away from really smart people who understand what God is. And he'll aspire to be like those bozos. He says, uh, it doesn't matter, this is temptation of sin, it doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder's no better than cards if cards can do the trick. The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. You don't need to tempt them with go out and kill somebody. Man, just gradually nudge them a little bit here and a little bit here and a little bit here and a little bit here. And pretty soon they'll be so far from the truth you got them. Uh, I want to thank someone in our class who sent me those as, as her favorite excerpts as she reviewed the lesson. She said, these are the ones I tell my kids all the time. Huh, thank you. Some good gift idea. Gift idea seven, miracles. Great book. It's a theological treatise on miracles that I was going to spend time with, but I don't have time, so go buy it. Points for home. (laughs) Number one, God is real. 
whether you like it or not, whether you want to worship him or not, it doesn't change him one bit. He's real. He really is. The writer of Hebrews says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, forever. He's not changing. He is who he is. And not only that, but internally, we all know it. Oh, we may fight against it. Oh, we may be disillusioned. Oh, we may say, no, there's no basis for faith. How can I know? I can't test it with a mathematical formula. But, as Paul said in Romans, men are without excuse. God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, that sense inside you that says there's some measure I ought to measure up to that I'm not. They've been clearly seen. They've been understood from what's been made. That's you and me. So we're without excuse. Point number two. Two men, nicknamed Jack, died on November 22nd, 1963. Jack Kennedy and C.S. Jack Lewis. I think Lewis had the greater influence. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, the Cuban Missile Crisis was Jack Kennedy, and he averted world war. But I think C.S. Lewis had the greater influence. Millions upon millions upon millions of his books that have changed hearts and minds and lives. The cover of Time magazine, certainly he was on it as well. Um, Why? Why did Lewis, why was Lewis so impacting The guy doesn't even become a Christian until he's 33 years old. He's only a Christian for three decades before he dies. But you know what he did? During that time, God transformed him by the renewing of his mind, like God promises to do with us. During that time, he took his abilities. Some might say skill set, which I said in the lesson, but... I've been told that may not be the best word. Let's use abilities. He took his abilities and he used them with every ounce of effort he had. Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. doesn't matter if you're collecting garbage or studying for a math test. I look for young people when I say that. Doesn't matter. If you're doing gymnastics, whatever you do, you do the very best you can because you're doing it for God. And when you do that, God makes a difference in his world. Last point for home. Learn from Lewis. Go read him. Go find one of these and go read him. And that's an okay thing to do. I'm not saying quit reading your Bible. I'm not saying stop quiet time. But I'm saying like Paul did. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Take note of him. Go read him. Learn from him. If bad company corrupts good character, what does good company do? It encourages it. So spend some time in some good company. There are lots of C.S. Lewis books at Barnes & Noble. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for uh, helping my voice endure through this class. Thank you for each person here today. I pray you will touch each person here with, with truth right now in their heart. That anybody with anything to talk about in that regard feels absolutely comfortable coming down and visiting with me or so, several others after class. And I thank you for the glory of your son and the truth of the light that we have in you. Bless everyone here today. Give us uh, 
a, a wonderful week and a chance to come back together next Sunday and learn about Francis Schaeffer and his walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.